0: Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit seekingtruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, Sharon presents part one of the Gospel of Luke chapters 18 and 19. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran going to go back and wrap up the end of 17 being asked by the pharisees when the kingdom of god was coming jesus answered them the kingdom of god is not coming with signs to be observed nor will they say lo here it is or there for behold the kingdom of god is in the midst of you the kingdom of god is in the midst of you is what jesus told them jesus the king of kings of the kingdom of God was standing right in front of them, but they did not realize it yet. They don't recognize their visitation. Jesus said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Lo there or low, low here. Do not go, do not follow them. Do not listen to false messiahs. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Folks, that's a promise. You won't miss it. You're not going to miss this event of the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's going to be cosmic. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, he tells them, to those who are standing right in front of him right then. This generation, this generation is going to see this. Second time he's predicted his passion. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married, they were given away in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. They weren't ready for the deluge, the flood. They were warned and warned and warned and warned and warned and warned and warned. And one day it did come. And they all swam for the highest rock, the highest mountain, the highest place they could get up. Who would last the longest? banging on the door of the ark, it shut, It sailed off, crying for their children. There's a lot of typology there that Jesus is alluding to. The deluge was considered to prefigure baptism, the waters of baptism, with the ark being the spiritual symbol of the church itself, the safest place inside the church. Stay in the ark. The purifying water of baptism, Inside the ark, the church removes original sin while the enormous floodwaters of death cleanse the entire world of enormous sin. You want to be inside the ark. You want to stay inside the church. It's the safest place. The Lord said at that time in Genesis 6, I'm sorry that I've made man. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Only righteous Noah and his family, eight in all. Eight people on the face of the earth were worthy to be saved that glistened and God in the ark. And they were saved from the water by the wood of the ark. It was made of gopher wood by the wood of the ark. It was the wood of the ark that saved humanity and brought them into a new covenant, a new chance, a do-over, a start again, a begin again. Noah would give an offering of thanksgiving, a Eucharista, thanksgiving on an altar that he built immediately. The very first thing they got off the ark, he built the altar and gave thanks. Just as the wood of the cross offers salvation to those who are in the wooden ark of the church. A new covenant, a covenant in his blood, Luke 22 will tell us. St. Thomas More in Omaha, Nebraska is a church that is built to look like an ark. That was the architect's design. It's wooden. It looks like you're inside an ark. The risen Christ is in the window in the back, just as the wood of the cross offers salvation to those who are in the wooden ark of the church. Three different patterns of behavior may be distinguished in humans. While the righteous take refuge in the ark of the church and find salvation inside, the unrighteous attempt to assail and condemn the church. Number three, others who are lost due to their excessive attachments to worldly things seek safety by carrying all their possessions along with them. And they're so heavy, they miss the boat. On that day, Jesus says, let him who is on the housetop with his goods in his house, not come down to take them away. Don't don't, don't go grab all your things, your suitcases and your luggage in the china from Aunt Millie. Don't do that. Let your worldly attachments go and run to Jesus. And likewise, let him who is in the field not turn back. Let your worldly attachments go and run to Jesus. Angels came to Lot's family and warned him. Again, there were only a family of four who were faithful in these ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God sent angels to get them out of there. And they even wanted to rape the angels, if you recall the story in Genesis 19. God was about to destroy the entire world again. Or these cities at least, due to the grievous sin of the people who were living there. And they were told do not look back. And what does Mrs. Lot do? She looks back. A worldly attachment. She doesn't want she wants to see, she doesn't want to leave it all behind. Wait, 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 wait. And she turns to a pillar of salt. Don't look back. Let your worldly attachments go and run to Jesus. Keep your eyes on the Lord so you don't sink like Peter did out on the water. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Let your worldly attachments go and run to Jesus. Stay focused on him. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on that day, when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and brimstone rained from the heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let him who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let him not, who is in the field, turn back. Remember Lot's wife. She turned to a pillar of salt. Let your worldly attachments go and run to Jesus. Whoever seeks to gain his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. That's quite a saying, quite a juxtaposition there. Here's what Pope Francis says about that scripture. Today, the church, the Lord, with all his goodness, tells each one of us, stop, stop. Not every day will be so. Do not get used to this as if this life were eternity. There will be one day that you will be taken while the other one will remain. You will be taken. You will be removed. It means going with the Lord. Think that our life here will end. Jesus is saying that in Luke 17. I tell you that night, there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding grain together. One will be taken, the other left. And they said to him, where Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there the eagles will gather together. Some translations say eagles or vultures, where the vulture is, where the eagle is. Do you know what these birds do? These are massive birds of prey. These are carry-on birds. They eat flesh. That eagle can take that little goat right off the top of the cliff. Golden eagles, this type of bird. And in Deuteronomy, it gives 22 unclean birds that the Jews are not to eat or have anything to do with. They're unclean. Number one is the eagle. Number two is the vulture, along with 22 unclean birds. Leviticus 11 has a list, 21 unclean birds. Again, the first and second, the eagle or the vulture. Those are dirty birds for the Jews. Those are dirty birds. They're carry-on eaters. They're birds of prey. And they're always leading the list of the unclean, dirty birds. Number one, the eagle. Number two, the vulture, along with the hawk, the raven, the owl, the bat, all birds you love, right? (laughs) Number one, the eagle. Number two, the vulture in both lists. Guess what was on the top of the Roman standard? The eagle. Rome loved the eagle, the pagan nation. They marched with the eagle. The Parthian Empire dominated Central Asia and was a formidable power against Roman rule. The Romans fought against the Parthians three times without success. And in 53 BC, 53 years before Jesus, the Roman army led by Crassus suffered a devastating loss against the Parthians. Cassius was killed. His head was sent to Armenia as a sign of Roman humiliation. Furthermore, the Roman standard was relinquished to the Parthians and the Romans were infuriated by this shameful defeat and they hungered for revenge. Both Julius Caesar and Mark Anthony attempted to reclaim the Roman standard with that eagle many, many times with military means. And Julius Caesar was assassinated. And so his military campaign was cut short. But Mark Anthony picked it up and only suffered further losses on the battlefield. They couldn't get their eagle back, their standard. Augustus was able to succeed where all his predecessors had failed. This is Caesar Augustus, who we heard about in Luke. He reclaimed the Roman standard that the Parthians had in their possession for over 30 years. Armenia was incorporated into the Roman Empire as a client kingdom. And because of its important strategic geographic location, Rome gained a very valuable offensive position. And finally, the Parthian king asked Augustus Caesar for a truce to restore the Roman standard. We'll give your eagles back if you make this deal with us. While no other previous Roman had been able to defeat the Parthians on the battlefield, Augustus did it through diplomatic means, and he got the standards back, the spoils, the standards of the three Roman armies that had lost their eagles. And so the eagle is a great symbol for the Romans. And it was put on their coins. There's Augustus Caesar on the front of the coin. Getting the standard back with the eagle on top was the back of the coin. It was very important. Each Roman legion carried one eagle standard. The eagle was extremely important to the Roman military being a symbol of a legion. The eagle was made of silver or bronze. It had outstretched wings, and a standard bearer specifically called a signifier to carry that standard. Under Julius Caesar, in circumstance of danger, that standard bearer had to get the eagle off the top and stick it in his girdle for protection. So it was very important, this bird, to the Romans, the Aquila, or the eagle. The eagle, the guy who was bearing it, would wear a lion. That was the customary dress, the lion head on top of the eagle bearer's head. Now, when Roman Emperor Constantine the Great, this is 306 AD, he played a very influential role in the proclamation of the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, which declared religious tolerance for Catholicism in the Roman Empire. And he called the First Council of Nicaea in 325 AD and produced the statement that we pray every Sunday called the Nicene Creed. And the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, built in Jerusalem, Israel, was on the order of Constantine the Great. The church houses the tomb of the risen Christ, and it became the holiest place on the face of the earth and in Christendom. This is Raphael's painting of Constantine's baptism to Catholicism. And he changed the eagle to the Cairo. He took the eagle off the Roman standard and put Cairo on top instead. And there he had a figure of the emblem of Christ woven in gold with pure purple, on purple cloth, and it was called a laborium. And he changed the top instead of an eagle to a Cairo symbol. Now, what does Cairo mean? It's one of the earliest forms of the Christogram. He took the Greek letters that spelled Christos, and he took the first two letters, the chi and the ro, and it means Christ, Jesus Christo. To him be the glory. This was now the symbol of Rome. This is incredible. And it went on all the coins, the chi symbol, on all the banners, even one where, where it's crushing a snake. Christ victorious. The name of Christ be ever victorious was printed on some of the, the fabric. So the eagle. So, two people in bed, one taken, one left. Two women grinding grain, one taken, one left. Where, Lord, they asked. Where there is a dead body, there the eagles will gather. Jesus prophesied that where there is a dead body, there the eagles or the vultures will gather. Well, here is his dead body. The eagles, the Romans, put him on the cross. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will be gathered. We know in the Roman crucifixions, birds were always swarming. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will be gathered, they're carry-on, flesh-eaters. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will be gathered together, they're carry-on, eaters. And you know the good thief and the bad thief hanging by Jesus, Luke will tell us about it soon, but if you've ever seen Mel Gibson's Passion, The Passion of the Christ, there is a horrific scene where the blackbird pecks out the eye of the bad thief. And you don't forget this scene when you see it. And Proverbs 30 says, The eye that mocks a father that scorns an aged mother will be pecked out by the ravens of the valley, will be eaten by the vultures. And that's what happens in some of those crucifixions. The the, the eagles and the vultures are always circling. And the people would have known this. And there's Gestus in the movie of the passion. And the raven is on top of his cross and pecks his eyes out. You also know that the Roman soldiers would have been standing at the bottom of the cross. They would have had their standards with their eagles on top. So where the corpse is, there the eagles will gather. We know some of those Roman soldiers came to believe, surely this man was the son of God. And they changed their alliance, perhaps. We know there were eagles where the corpse was at the tomb because the Roman soldiers were on guard with their standards, guarding the body of Jesus, the corpse. So those prophecies can have immediate or future fulfillment. A future fulfillment of this is when one generation later, the Roman army is ordered to go destroy the temple in Jerusalem. So you have the Roman soldiers again under the direction of General Titus marching into Jerusalem a century later to destroy the temple of the Jews. Where the corpses are, there the vultures will gather. There were many, many, many people walled in into the temple. We read about that in Josephus. He's the Jewish historian, the Jewish wars. Here's a quote of the Jewish people that were trapped and Rome was there. Most of the slain were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed. They were butchered where they were caught. The heap of corpses mounted higher and higher about the altar. A stream of blood flowed down the temple steps and the bodies of those slain at the top slipped to the bottom. A stream of blood flowed down the temple steps and the bodies of those slain at the top slipped to the bottom. Where the corpses are, there the eagles will be gathered. Another fulfillment of that prophecy, perhaps. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he's weeping over the city. He knows the destiny of this city. He knows the destiny of the temple. When he drew near, he saw the city today in Luke 19 and he wept over it saying, Would that even today you knew the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will cast up a bank about you and surround you and hem you in on every side and dash you to the ground, you and your children within you. He's speaking prophetically. He knows this will happen within one generation. You and your children within you. He's weeping also for pregnant women who carry life at that time. The siege of Jerusalem happened in 70 AD. It's a historical fact. Siege engines like this, this huge, giant catapult, they had the people bordered in on all sides. And it says in the scripture, Jesus went on to say, they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Not one stone upon another. The temple was totally destroyed to the ground. Everything was burned. Everything was melted, except all that is left to this day are these stones which the Jews have left in their place, a testimony to the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 AD by the Romans, not one stone left upon another stone. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. What's a visitation? An apparition, an appearance, a manifestation, a materialization, an emergence. Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, visited them in that generation, and they didn't notice their visitation. They didn't recognize him. You did not know the time of your visitation. They did not recognize Messiah. Jesus wept over the city of David and Jesus knew it would just be one generation. 40 years later, he's 33, 40 years later in 70 AD, the temple would be obliterated. Now the temple was the Holy of Holies. It was at one time the most sacred place on the face of the earth because why it housed the true presence of the living God in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies behind the curtain, but not anymore. The Ark of the Covenant was missing. But Jesus himself promised that he was the new temple. He is the true presence of God. He said in John's gospel, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Well, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? And the temple he was speaking of was his own body. And later, later they figured it out. You did not know the time of your visitation. Mary did know the time of her visitation. She did not miss it. Simple, humble girl, uneducated, she did not miss the time of her visitation, nor did her cousin Elizabeth when the Messiah visited her, nor did John the Baptist when he left in the womb and, and realized the time of his visitation. Mary was filled with the Holy Spirit. Anaphneo, she cried out in a loud voice Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. How could the mother of my Lord come to me? She didn't miss her visitation. Simeon and Anna did not miss their visitation. Simeon, full of the Holy Spirit. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, he ran into the temple. So did Anna, the old widow, 84-year-old widow, had been worshiping and fasting day and night, day and night, day and night. She's not going to miss the time of her visitation. She spoke of Jesus to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Full of the Holy Spirit, they did not miss their visitation. But how about those who weren't full of the Holy Spirit, who didn't have that advantage because the Holy Spirit didn't indwell people yet in the Old Testament. But the Holy Spirit did fall on those ten when Jesus himself breathed the Holy Spirit in the upper room on those ten men in that new covenant priesthood in John chapter 20 and the Holy Spirit did get poured out again on 120 people in the upper room. 12, governance. 10, fullness of the divine order. 12 times 10, a new governance, a restored divine order, the new covenant, the Holy Spirit poured out onto mankind. No one now could miss the visitation of Jesus. 3,000 that day step forward to be baptized. And John the Baptist has said that Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I only got water. He's got fire and the Holy Spirit. Wait for him. And then he poured out on the entire world. He asked them, those 3,000 that day, if they would take that message to the end of the earth. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Take it to Omaha, Nebraska. Today, the beggar. The blind beggar in Jericho in Luke chapter 18 did not miss his visitation, even though he was totally blind and didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. He said, what's happening? What's happening? This is The son of David's walking by. Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. Be quiet, be quiet. Don't bother him. Son of David! He didn't miss his visitation. This was a -a once-in-a-lifetime chance. The Messiah was walking past him. What would you like me to do for you? I want to see your faith has made you well. He entered into the temple today and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Now, Jeremiah had said that years ago. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Only Luke told us in Luke chapter two, if you remember when Jesus was 12 years old, Jesus was teaching in that same temple when he was 12. They were astonished. His parents are crazy with fear looking for him. He said, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Jesus knew where he belonged. He knows that the true presence of God belongs in the temple of God, his father's house. Duh! Mom, didn't you figure that one out? 20 years later, Jesus is in that same temple again in Luke 19, and he's not happy at all. He enters into the temple and begins to drive out those who sold. My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves, a den of robbers. His father's house had been turned into a marketplace, a shopping mall. Passover pilgrims were required to come to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice every year. They also had to pay their annual temple tax at that time. They're traveling in groups so they don't, marauders don't rob them. They get there and Already, now listen to this. This is in my research. I found this. There were already four other designated marketplaces selling the sacrificial animals. They were approved marketing places by the Sanhedrin. They were conveniently located near the Mount of Olives. But under the high priest Caiaphas, the court of the Gentiles, the outermost precinct of the temple, had been turned into a trading place. An abuse that hindered Gentile or foreigners from worshiping in the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't pray there because it had been taken over by vendors. According to Josephus, Caiaphas, the high priest, it was not in the normal way that a high priest was elected. He was appointed by the Roman prefect that was before Pontius Pilate, Valerius Gratus. The high priest was in cohorts with Rome. Rome was now appointing the high priest. Jesus is outraged. Caiaphas has turned the temple place into a marketplace. It's an injustice. All people are welcome here. This is the court for foreigners, the immigrants that have come, the migrants, the Gentiles, the foreigners from every country. Isaiah 56 said, these I will bring to my holy mountain, the foreigners, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Even foreigners. That court of the Gentiles was there for a reason. And the Gentile worshipers were getting squeezed out. They couldn't go there to pray. And that was supposed to be for all people. The Gentiles were supposed to be allowed there. Jesus wants to preserve this place for all God-fearers to pray. Jesus was upset by the corruption, the excessive extortion that had come to surround the commercial activities being carried out right within the temple precinct. This is a den of thieves. This is a den of robbers, and the high priest has ordered it, allowed it. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 2 Jesus himself is our peace. He who has made the two groups one, who has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Take that wall down. If a Gentile crossed over that wall, he could be killed. Pilgrims were exploited by the money changers who were charging an inflated rate, ripping the people off with a high money exchange. Merchants were selling sacrificial animals that the people had to have for worship at Passover. They were selling them for exorbitant prices. And Jesus is reminding his followers what he preached just the chapter before in Luke 16. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Also, Zechariah had a vision of the messianic age. And Zechariah in 1421 said, there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. That fulfills that too. Jesus is driving them out. The Messiah, the messianic time is now. It's here. No traitors in the temple. The sacrificial system, which was at the heart of Judaism, would soon become obsolete. Because the final sacrifice would be the Lamb of God. There will be no need for any other animal sacrifices after Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice once for all, and the victim, and the high priest, and the sacrifice, all three. Temple was destroyed by the Romans, the Jewish temple by the Romans in 70 AD. There will be no more ever again animal sacrifice. And there hasn't been to this day. Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people sought to destroy him. And they did not find anything they could do for all the people hung on his every word. How had Jesus entered into that city of David? City of David, that's what it's called. It's Jerusalem, it's a city set on a hill. It's the highest geographically in Israel. I will go up to the house of the Lord. Jesus drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called It. Bethphage and Bethany are two towns on the way. You know Bethany is where Lazarus lived. Bethphage is a little further up by the Mount of Olives. It's not there today, but that's where it was back then. Now there's a wall. And he said this. He went up ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite, that would be Bethphage, where you will enter. You'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. That's a detail Luke gives us. In Bethphage, they're going to find a colt tied up, one which no one has ever sat on. That was part one of the Gospel of Luke, chapters 18 and 19, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.